You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. One of the biggest barriers that I face when I'm trying to relate to God, and really with everybody, is the relationship I had with my earthly father. And I feel... I talk about him all the time, and I feel like I should get over all the issues. I kind of feel some shame about even bringing it up. And there's like, I'm go, I'm here, here I go again, talking about my dad. And there's some problem I have with that because I think I should be like over my daddy issues. And I've, uh, and I, I, I kind of, I, I was talking to some people before this, and I said, I talk about my dad a lot, right? And they're like, yeah, but that's okay, you know. But I, I, I kind of think you're tired of hearing about it too. And so there's something happening there where I'm kind of uh, projecting my shame onto you and expecting you to be sick of me talking about it because I'm kind of sick of talking about it because I feel like I should be over it by now. So the shame I, 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 I feel and still having these problems, so to speak, or this wound, if you will, and still thinking about him as if I should stop thinking about my dad, getting it out there and giving it some light is, is, is good. So... I hope that, so there's some self-service in that sense, but also I hope that you can also um, share the things you need to share as well. So maybe there's, a, there's something that um, certainly I'm benefiting from by telling you, but maybe, maybe, maybe there's something for you too. Nevertheless, I have a hard time relating to God because of my dad because there's so much paternal language in the Bible and we're going to read a Bible passage later that has tons of it. So it, when I read it again, it brought up a lot for me. You know, I was so uh, desperate for affirmation and attention as a child and as an adult. And the attention that my, and affirmation that my dad withheld from me, or at least that's how I saw it, affected me so much that I wasn't sure that God would attend to me either or uh, affirm me either, or love me either. And I jokingly told some friends the other day that sometimes I have a running script in my head that, like, I know God saves me, but I also know God hates me, you know? So it sounds so negative, but I have this idea in my head where, like, oh, you might get into the next age, but God is still going to be annoyed with you, you know? And and I'm kind of sharing it because it's, it's a... I know it's like an absurd thought, or at least um, I like know I should know that, but it's still there. It's still with me, and I have to, I have to keep working it out and trying to, uh, trying to get through that. Um, that kind of projection that I put on God is lar- was largely supplied to me by, by my earthly father. Here he is. This is an old photo. Um, as you can tell, the flip phone alone is the giveaway that he's holding. That's the, that's the timepiece. But there are many other things that are different about the photo because you see me now. You can tell this there's some time has passed. Um, you know, I wanted his approval and he never gave it to me the way that felt right. So I never thought God approved of me either. And I never, and, I, and plus I never compared to my sister who effortlessly seemingly collected tons of approval and love. And that's been a real struggle for me, not just with my sister, but... Um, to decide that God loves me, and that even my dad loves me too, because I think he does, it was a bit hard for me to grasp. 
And I remember the choices I made when I was younger that, that kind of individuated me or differentiated me or, di or even distanced me from my father particularly. And I made it clear that I was going in my own way. And I was reminded of this recently because I had a cousin that moved into town. He's from Egypt, but he moved away from Egypt like about the time the Arab Spring happened. If you remember that, that's about 2011 or so. And he moved to Colorado, then he ended up here in Philly. But he lived with my parents for a bit in the transition. And they became like his parents too. And we were having lunch the other day and he reminded me that, you know, for some reason, he reminded me that my parents didn't love my uh, life choices very much. And I was like, yeah, I know, but like, why are, they why are they talking to you about that? You know, like it was a little strange, right? And, it, and they don't rub it in all the time, but it's not a well-kept secret apparently. And so that's something because it's, it's, it's troubling to me. Um, it's hard to hold on to that for me, you know, to be okay with who I am and where I am, but also to know that I probably fell short of some expectations. You know, because Egyptian sons are supposed to be uh, like engineers or doctors, right? Especially the ones that made it, that were well off enough to make it over the Atlantic Ocean into the United States, right? You're talking about a lot of opportunity, a lot of education, you know. We made it, we, we made it so you should too, right? There's some, there's some pressure to succeed in a certain way. So I'm, I moved to Philadelphia to become a journalist at first. That was pretty low. Um, especially in that dwindling industry, right? And then I became a teacher. Also, not, not, not to his standards, you know? Even though teachers are great, right? It's just still not, not how he's working it out. Then I became a pastor, right? And stopped being a teacher, and th that, was really, uh, that, was, that was really a big step. Not because they don't have faith, but because they don't, they, they don't honor the position the same way, right? There's something to that that was disappointing to him that he definitely told me. And those things maybe aren't impressive to him. And you know what? I feel okay about who I am and where I am and what I'm doing. So I don't necessarily need somebody to say you're doing fine. But I kind of wanted him to see it too, right? And maybe he does. So like maybe I just wanted him to say something. You know, um, we fought a lot when I was younger, my dad and I, and I always wanted to, uh, always wanted to beat him at something. And I've, I've, I've been telling this story for a while, so you might have heard it before, but I, I keep revisiting it and changing it according to the occasion. So when you retell a story, sometimes you uh, fit it to your time and place. By the way, that's, that, that, that's it. When you're reading the Bible, that's a good thing to keep in mind that the stories are being fit for a time and place, and that's okay. So we've, we got a Super Nintendo, and my dad and I used to play this game when we were younger. Um, somebody remarked about, the, the likeness, the, about who that goalie looks like at the, at the five that I didn't, someone said it looked like Trump for some reason. I didn't realize that until after. Um, so if that's distracting you, or maybe now I'm further distracting you. We used to play this game, and at first I was way better at, 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 than him at it, then he started crushing me. Every time he beat me, I'd cry. I had a real emotional reaction. And so he never let me win. He always, he always won. And then he, told, he, assigned, he said, you should use the automated goaltender. And then we should play. That'll be, and then he'll, he'd still beat me even after I didn't even have to control the goaltender. And that made me cry more, right? There was a sense of defeat that was really personal for me. And I really wanted to win. And then in 2001, 
one of my favorite basketball team, the 76ers played his favorite basketball team, the Lakers. We had to watch the game on separate TVs because we, there was too much hostility between us to watch the game together because dad liked the Lakers and it wasn't because of uh, Shaq and Kobe at the time, but because when he emigrated from Egypt, uh, you can just pick whatever team you want. And he came in the 80s and it was showtime and it, you know, the, the uh, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, really great team. So. Maybe I'd pick them too. I think if he, if, if he came today, he would pick the Sixers over the Lakers. I believe, th I believe that, and somehow that means something to me. Um, so he was watching the game. We were, we, were, we, we were both experiencing it together. And I remember it was game one of that series, and, and everyone thought it was in LA, and everyone thought the Sixers were gonna lose, but we, we won that game. We went on to lose the, fo the, the, the following four, but that, that win was, was like the great, uh, it's not my achievement, but it felt like mine. It was the greatest achievement of my sports spectating at that point. This was before the 08 World Series and Super Bowl 52, and before all the championships, the Sixers, the Eagles, and the Phillies are gonna win in the next decade. I think we'll win like 10, so we're, I'm hopeful. But this moment when Allen Iverson, pound for pound greatest of all time, stepped over Tyron Lue, this little shrimp that we didn't like. We were very negative about him for some reason. It felt like I was, I, I'm stepping over dad now. Something's happening. And I, I called him that night to rub it in more. And I remember we watched, this is dating it, giving you the specific time period. We watched Leno that night and it recorded earlier in the day, he made fun of the Sixers fans for you know, um, rooting for their team because we would so badly get crushed. But then I watched it live and I'm like, no, we won. And then uh, Stuart Scott, rest in peace, the ESPN broadcaster, interviewed Allen Iverson and AI said something like, a lot of people have lost bets tonight. And then they fist bumped and I felt like I was, I was right with them. And it, it was actually very personally affirming to me when they won in relationship to my father particularly. So you can see how emotionally wrapped up I get in these things. And the Sixers lost the next game, the following game, and, and we couldn't watch the game together, so we watched us separately. And, and, and when they lost during game four, probably, I cried at halftime because I knew this series is over. We're not gonna, we can't win this game, and it's done. And it really felt like dad crushed me. And we, my dad and I ended up kind of watching separate TVs for about the rest of our time together in the house before I moved away, you know, we had emotional distance. We had, we had tension. We didn't really know how to express it. We, we, we never talked about it. We talked about it through other things. So like through political differences or religious differences or whatever. And it's amazing. I wanted to beat my dad so that he would affirm me, not just conquer him. And that's kind of a counterintuitive thing to do. But it's what I did, and, and you know, I have the running thought in my mind that maybe if I honored the patriarch more, like a good Egyptian boy should have, I would have gotten more of what I needed, but, and maybe I should have, you know, I don't know. But that time is, what I know now is that time is long past. So I rebelled against dad in many ways, and you know, in my career choice and where we decided to live, in uh, my favorite basketball team, and my faith, my politics even. You know, in, in, in those uh, differences, I dishonored the patriarch. And so I suffered a loss 
I subsequently suffered a loss of honor and collected some shame through that and kind of felt bad about myself. That's why when I read a passage like what we're about to read, it's really challenging for me because my relationship with my dad colors how I read it, colors how I relate, it influences a lot. And so growing in consciousness of that helps me not just read the Bible, but relate to others and relate to God. So before we get to it, let me just give you some brief context of where we are. It's John chapter five, um, chapter one, the word of God. Jesus creates the world and, and dwells with us. In chapter 2, he turns water into wine and, and flips some tables at the temple, kind of reordering how things work. In chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus and converts him. And then chapter 4, the woman at the well, and converts her. And now he's done some uh, work on the Sabbath, thereby violating it. And he's getting into a conflict with the ruling authority, the ruling class, who think he's acting like God because he's, he's, he's equating himself with God. And Jesus now says he is God, which is really problematic, not just for uh, theological reasons, but also for political reasons. In his declaration that he's God, he's taking power away from the ruling class, which will end up getting him killed. So let's read this passage. This is how he's responding to the accusation of disobeying God's law in the accusation of being uh, like God or God. Someone out loud read this. It's two slides, and then, we'll, and then we'll talk about it for a sec. Jesus responded to the Jewish leaders. I assure you that the Son can't do anything by himself except what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he does. He will show him greater works than these so that he will marvel. As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so too does the Son give life to whomever, who, whomever he wishes. The Father doesn't judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. I assure you that whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and won't come under judgment, but has passed from death into life. There's another passage. Someone else or Jessica, keep going. I assure you that the time is coming and is here when the dead will hear the voice of God's Son and those who will hear it will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He gives the Son authority to judge because he is the human one. Don't be surprised by this, because the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Those who did good things will come out into the resurrection of life, and those who did wicked things into the resurrection of judgment. I can't do anything by myself. Whatever I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. I don't seek my own will, but the will of the, will, but the, will of the one who said it. Thanks, Jess and Charles. The passage is interesting, particularly because Jesus is making a really bold claim about who he is in God, the Father, as he calls him, but also how he submits to the Father and does everything in service to the Father. Doesn't do anything alone, he says. He does nothing by himself. 
He begins by uh, responding to this accusation of being equal with God. And he says, my relationship with my father gives me power and authority. He's following in God's example, but not being God. He's not claiming equality, but rather uh, obedience and delegated authority, like God is giving him authority. In fact, he's talking more like the father's apprentice and following his lead. Thus, he's collecting authority, his authority, not from himself, but from God. Jesus is using divine characteristics to defend himself, to describe himself. He gives life. He's free to judge. And he does so in the Father's stead. So he expresses some humility, but he doesn't do so in order to acquiesce his detractors. He's not just trying to calm them down. He's being authentic to who he is in the world. He has no problems putting himself up to every task of the Father. And he collects his honor from the Father as well. And that if his, dis, if his opponents here dishonor the Son, that's Jesus, they likewise dishonor the Father. You can see, I, I've already been talking about honor and shame in my personal experience. And, 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 and I think you can probably see why essentially looking at um, a Middle Eastern son's relationship with his father, Jesus and the father here, is really not unlike what I went through. A lot of similar themes, motifs, ideas that we relate to now. And so 2,000 years later, power and family structures in the Middle East haven't changed that much. And so I'm still experiencing it like, like it's real. It's real intimate to me. And, and, and Jesus is putting himself as equal to the Father, but in, in, in submission to him. In him we find life and eternal life, he says. He says, I can't do anything by myself. I do it together with the Father in community. Whatever, what, whatever I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. I don't seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus is both dependent upon God and one with God. Jesus doesn't elevate himself to equal status with God, but serves in submission to God. It's a challenging passage for me because when it comes to, because I don't know what to do with it. It has, it has a local meaning, and we can talk about that, right? Jesus is making a declaration about who he is in God, that he is God really, and what's going to follow over the next five chapters is increasing, uh, increasingly extreme statements about himself, which will lead to death. And it's noteworthy in the body of the New Testament because Jesus is almost never this explicit in the uh, other Gospels in my reading. So this is real special, something that's happening, you know, theologically here. That's true. So that, that, I guess that's nice. But then what do I do with it? You know, I generally want to caution against doing things with the Bible as if the Bible is supposed to do something and it only has value for its uh, utility. But I think, the, I think the, the, the passage in the Bible in general has value beyond its utility so that even if you don't find it useful, it doesn't mean it's, it's, it's um, worthless. That we ourselves don't just find our value in our utility either. And so it's taking care with, with even the Bible helps, maybe helps us do that with ourselves too. So I don't want to lean too heavily on what to do with it, but I still wonder what is it, what is it, how, does, how is it working right now? What does it mean to me? Um, the hard part for me comes with this idea of submission, especially submission to a paternal figure because I never wanted to submit to my dad because submitting to my dad meant losing. 
It meant being humiliated, right? It meant, be, it meant, it meant being, uh, being debased. It meant not being loved and affirmed and delighted in. You know, so I can't use that. That, that, that language is really difficult for me. And if I internalize that too much, I'm going to have a hard time relating to God, too. So it's not easy for me. It's complicated, and it doesn't work out on its own. You know, and, and, and you might be experiencing something similar even as you're reading this. It's okay to say, I can't do this one right now. There's too much language that's difficult for me. You know, I wanted to approach it because I, I want to work through what's blocking me from it. But a big difference here between, uh, between the father and the son and me and my dad is the intimacy that they share. He can submit to God, so to speak. He can listen to God. He can seek the will of the one who sent him because of the radical intimacy they share in the community that they form. Sometimes we think of uh, the father, son, and Holy Ghost, a family working together in community, right? That's, that's, a, that's a one way you can imagine this unusual, otherwise indescribable relationship. He's not working this out alone. He is not doing it based on his sole authority. It's a shared authority that he has with God. And, and in saying that, and even saying, no, we're the, uh, uh, my judgment is just, he's talking back right to the powers and threatening them too. And so I guess that's the difference between Jesus and me, or at least one difference between Jesus and me, is he's reassured of his oneness with God because of their intimacy. And to be honest, I really didn't have that growing up with my dad. I was never reassured the way that I thought I needed to be. But that doesn't mean I can't have it with God. It doesn't mean I can't have it with you all. It doesn't mean I can't have it with my dad again. So a key... A key to my relationship with my father is centered on this. You know, when I was a kid, I needed approval from dad. Mainly because he was bigger and smarter than me, had a lot of authority over me, and I was a boy, right? And I think little boys and little people in general, children, need love and approval from their parents. So I don't think anything was wrong with me wanting that. You know, as parents, we represent a lot to our kids. So it's a reminder to me as a dad now. But these days, it's much better for me to see my dad, not as who he was and who I was, but as who he is. Who he is right now, all the trouble that he's been through, and to receive him as he is. And, and, and to receive him as he is, even when he's behaving at his worst self. You know, that, that when, when I can right-size him, I can be gracious with him. When we can right-size our relationships, we can be gracious with them. Right-sizing means removing some expectation and maybe even some power. Power over us, notably. It's true my dad had tons of influence over me when I was a kid. But the truth is, today he doesn't. And that's okay. And the void he left in me doesn't need to be crippling. I can see it. I can acknowledge it. I don't need to forget about it then I can be okay with who I am now and where I am now. It's a lot easier to honor each other, which we're going for, to listen to each other, to even submit to one another in mutuality when we see each other as people and kind of right-size ourselves. It's hard to do that because there's a lot between you and me. There's authority, there's power, there's problems in the world, right? There's power structures that make even an idea like submission complicated. When I finally right-sized my dad, I could love him and connect with him and appreciate him. 
but that doesn't change the pain of the past. But I didn't need to beat him to move on. You know, I didn't need to kill the patriarch to be free. Maybe I needed to kill the patriarchy, right? The power over me, right? That's, that's something else. And so I think that's, that's, that's where I want to leave you. I, I started by saying I had a tumultuous relationship with my dad. I wanted love and affirmation and approval, and he withheld it. Who knows why? Maybe he didn't have a lot from his dad. I don't know. But it hurt, and we grew apart. And I, and, and, and I thought if I showed him how smart or talented I was, maybe even at his expense, he might, he might love me more. And the relationship colors how I see God, how I read the Bible, how I relate to almost everybody around me. The passages about Jesus and the Father and the, and, 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 um, and the former submitting to the latter are really hard for me. I do think God is calling us to live a life where we don't do anything by ourselves, though. So when Jesus says that, it resonates. We don't do anything by ourselves. We do it together, and we're better together than we are apart. You know, that might be the whole point of God in the world. God came with us to be together with us, right? The word dwelling with us as John starts his gospel. We do things together. We do things in service to each other, in mutuality, in cooperation, in family. We, uh, we submit ourselves to each other. Someone, someone at the five said... Maybe we offer ourselves to one another like you might submit a paper. I really like that idea. And, and, and I want to move to a place where we offer ourselves to one another, submit to one another, without fear that we'll be dominated and stepped over and insulted, right? Because that's the, that's the fear. If I do this, you're going to hurt me because what follows submission right now in the world is quite often oppression and violence, right? That's the response I expect to get when I do this. That's, that's what right-sizing means. No, I'm gonna, we're all going to be right-sized. You know, instead of trying to make new power structures that compete for more power and we get into a power struggle for authority, for domination, we deconstruct, we tear down power structures so that we can be with one another, be one with one another, as we listen to God together, just like Jesus did. So in a sense, my problem with my father was a power struggle. And we were kind of competing for honor. And I didn't supply him the honor he wanted, and that caused tension, especially towards uh, the end of my life. That's, that's what was happening. I don't want to live in a community with just power struggles happening, right? I don't, I, 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 I don't want mutuality and the idea of submission, as it were, and hell, even obedience, right? To be expressions of oppression or domination. And they can be, right? Unchecked. If you just let it go and you don't interrogate what's going to happen in the world, it'll be like that, right? Jesus himself is interrogating the, in, the ruling class by saying, no, I'm the judge now. And he's right-sizing them. And they're getting deeply anxious, ready to kill him, right? So I, I want to participate in creating a community where we are right-sized enough to freely relate and love each other as we relate and love God. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.